Hey everyone, this is going to be a good episode. Glad you're here. Thanks for watching. We're answering four interesting investing questions. I'm happy to say before we dive into it that this episode is sponsored by Main Street Financial Data and the website makes stock research incredibly fast, easy, intuitive, and it's all in one place. And I use it because it shows the most relevant info that I want without the noise. It's an awesome replacement for hypercharts, which is now gone if you're familiar with that. And it continues to add even more useful key performance indicator indicators and specific metrics for the most popular companies. And the best part is it's completely free. So go check it out. Start your own stock research using the link below in the description or type in MainStreetFinancialData.com to try it out for yourself. All right, Jamie, kick us off with our, for, our first investing question. So we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, common questions, um, you know, whether it's with stocks or questions we personally get. And I'm going to start with one question that I always get, and that is, why don't I necessarily always care about valuation? I, th I think that's a, value, uh, a valuable question and an important question because there are a lot of investors that are purely focused on valuation first um, and then, you know, business analysis later. And so the simple answer for me is that for High quality companies, even expensive valuations, can still be considered uh, undervalued. And so you you hear the stereotypical example of oh, uh, if you bought Amazon uh, at its IPO or at its most expensive valuation, you'd still be making a lot of money. I do subscribe to that, but I do think that example is overvalued. So or is is uh, you know talked about a little too much. And so I did it's a little overvalued. bit of That's perfect. <laughs> I did a little bit of research on my own and um, I, I looked at some past uh, companies. So here are some examples. Waste management at one point has traded uh, nearly at 240 times earnings. Apple has at one point traded above 240 times earnings, and Alphabet has traded basically near 100 times earnings all at one point over, I believe this is uh, uh, about the past 20 years. So. Yet all of the all, all three of those companies has post, has posted really impressive returns, and so this gets back to my home point. You could have bought at those most expen expensive valuations for any of these three high high quality companies, but they're really high quality businesses, and so therefore you're still producing some really strong returns. And here's here's another example: the to uh, for Facebook, um, almost all of their stock return contributions has come from. Earnings growth, um, actually more than all, uh, than Facebook's total stock returns has come from earnings growth, and then there was multiple compression that actually decreased the total return. But that total return for basically the past decade was uh, very very strong. And so uh, I I guess what I'm getting at is um, if earnings growth or sales growth or cash flow growth can uh, outpace the multiple compression and it truly is a high quality business if those cash flows can grow at a really fast rate for the long haul then it doesn't necessarily matter what valuation you're getting at. Uh, of, of course, buying at a lower valuation or a better price is better. Um, but if it's truly a high quality business, that earnings growth, that cash flow growth can supersede the multiple expansion that will inevitably come and still produce really great returns. I don't want to miss out on a high quality company just because I'm not a fan of the stock. If I believe that the cash flows or the earnings growth can outpace that 
multiple compression that the company will inevitably see uh, in the in the long term, um, I'm not necessarily concerned. There's one last um, chart here that I want to I want to talk about, and it's basically what drives outperformance. Uh, you know, in in long-term um, stocks and basically just shareholder returns. And so you can see in this chart, the the first year, uh, what drives stock performance or st- stock outperformance um, in, in a one-year time frame, almost all of that comes from the multiple it's at in hopefully multiple expansion of 46% of the re- of outperformance comes from multiple expansion. But if you zoom that out to 10 years, um, almost all of that, it looks like about 90% comes from sales and profit growth and just 5% comes from that multiple expansion. So, um, you know, it's, it's hitting home that point that, um, over the long term, which is where I'm invested in what drives outperformance. It is sales growth. It is earnings growth growth. It is cash flow growth valuation. Uh, is much is is a lot less important. That said, I mean, valuation is really important when you're not dealing with high quality businesses that can't generate uh, long term sustainable cash flow growth. Well, the, and on that point, yeah, what's up, Connor? The, the the way that I look at it is is this: valuation is a box that I check last in exactly. my um, when I'm going over a new company. So I'll look at the company, I'll look at its cash flows, I'll look at its potential future cash flows, I'll look at its earnings growth, uh, I'll look at its moat or competitive advantages of why that cash flow is going to continue. And if all of that looks good, then I'll move on to valuation. So I'm not in the market trying to find, I, I guess, value arbitrage when I think, you know, I, I'm not trying to find a company that is worth $50 and I'm going to pay $30 for it. Like Benjamin Graham talked about, uh, you know, back in the forties, you know, I think there was more opportunity for it back then today, the markets are much more efficient and there's not as much opportunity there. So that's not where I start an investment thesis. My investment thesis is this is a solid business. Here are the reasons that it's going to continue to be an even better business in the future. And what's the price I'm going to pay? Like, that's the last thing that I'm looking at. It's similar to if you're a business owner and you're trying to, you know, add or I guess increase your value add as a business. You know, you're going to look at this new piece of technology, say say it's a piece of technology uh, that you need to, to continue running your business. You look at it, you're like, okay, that's going to increase cash flows. That's going to increase efficiency. That's probably going to drive numbers on the bottom line to go up. But what's it cost? That's the last question that you ask. And you don't want to overpay, even if it's making your business better, even if it's making your portfolio uh, better. So that that's kind of the, the thought process that I run myself through when I look at a company. It's important. It could definitely be it. It could definitely stop me from investing in the company. But it's the very last thing that I look at. I that's ex- exactly what I was going to say. It could I, be I, something that like stops your investment, but it's not something that's going to, you know, bring you into it. You're not going to say, wow, you know, this company's trading so cheap. Like Carvana is really a discount right now. Look how cheap it's trading. You know, you're going to look at the business first and then valuation. So I think well said. And Jamie, that chart really hammers home like what matters for long-term investing. I'm glad you pulled that up. I, I would actually give a little pushback to what you guys said. If this truly is a high quality business and I think that cash flows and earnings can grow sustainably for the long term because of the competitive advantages that are set up within the business structure, I don't think there is or or uh, 
in a lot of cases, if it's truly a high quality business, it's really hard to overpay. You can look at, uh, you know, uh, Apple stock. Which How I said hard is was- it to find an Apple, an Amazon, an Alphabet? How hard is it to find those companies? So that th- those that- are the epitome of the last, the latest bull market. Like that is what has driven the market to new heights over and the last decade. And that's where I spend most of my time, Connor, because if I can truly find that high quality business, which is why I have only added one stock into my portfolio in the past year, um, I, it, it's not like I'm looking for any company that is, you know, somewhat good. Uh, I'm excited about a lot of companies, but the truth is not all companies are going to be as high quality as those kinds of companies. So I wait. Um, until I find that company that I do believe could become something like Apple or Google. I mean, obviously, there are going to be extremely few companies that are that perfect, but take a waste management, for example. Even if you're paying an egregious multiple, or at least what seems like an egregious multiple in the present, that stock has gone on to produce a very high returns. And so, uh, you know, it, it might be seen as overvalued in the moment, but if it truly is a high quality business, um, then that multiple matters a heck of a lot less 20 years down the road. And so most of my, uh, most of what I do, most of what I study is the business, finding out whether it's a, 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 a high quality business or just a meh business. That is where all of my studying and research goes towards. Because if it truly is a high quality business, then that valuation that I'm paying today matters a heck of a lot less. Yeah, and I think it depends on what type of company you're looking at too. If you think, if you think that this company could grow, like, okay, let's compare Dollar General and the Trade Desk, for example. Dollar General is a company that's going to maybe grow free cash flow at 10% for the next five to 10 years. I think it's grown at around 15%. It's grown free cash flow of around 15% for the last 10 years. And so maybe it can do 10, maybe maybe even 15, but I don't think it's going to be much higher because they've already started to reach their ceiling. I know that they're trying to move into you know some markets like Mexico uh, and some other international markets as well. But there's a dollar general within 75% of the American population. They have penetrated the American market very, very well. And that's why their cash flows have continued to grow. If I'm looking at a company like that, maybe I won't overpay and maybe I'll put more weight on the valuation versus a company like Trade Desk that I don't, I can't fully grasp. I can't predict as well where this company is going to go, but I know it's a great business. And so I don't want to go out there and pay some absurd valuation, which the trade desk is, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's an expensive multiple. Yeah. It's, it's a very expensive company, but it's so much different. Like I wouldn't pay 200 times earnings for dollar general, but I would probably pay it for the trade desk. And this, this leads into like my final point. I, don't always pay attention to valuation, but there are two scenarios where valuation comes into play a lot. It's with those non-high quality businesses, the one are just the ones that are just meh. Because if it can't grow sustainable sustainably for the long term, then it won't live up to its valuation. That's risk number one. So I pay a, a lot of attention to valuation there. The second one is with already mature companies. Take a 
Costco, for example. That's a really stable business. We we know it's a high quality business, but like Dollar General, it's hitting that ceiling. It's hitting its maturity state, and therefore you can't really expect um, growth twenty years from now to be at the same level as they are today. Um, and therefore, valuation, as you said, matters a heck of a lot more. Yeah, yeah it's like if you're right. looking, if you're taking that venture capital approach for example, and you're trying to find the next 10x company, valuation probably doesn't matter to you as much as an investor in consumer staples, for example. If you're investing in consumer staples, you should definitely pay attention to valuation because it's much easier to predict cash flows for companies in that sector versus high-flying tech stocks. It's a lot more difficult to predict what that company can do in 10 years in terms of cash flow. So it's almost not worth your time trying to figure out the valuation because it's so difficult to know because the company might not ever generate cash flows. So (laughs) how are you supposed to value that business? So it's more like you're investing in an idea. And this kind of goes back to a topic that we've talked about in the past about investing in ideas versus investing in businesses. And I, last time we had this conversation, I talked about how investing in actual businesses was much more important than investing in ideas. But I think there's definitely a place for both in your own portfolio. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's about time to move it on over to the second question of the day. If you could only invest in one sector, what would that sector be? And I want to get both of your takes on this. So I don't think I'm surprising anyone saying that if I had to invest in just one sector, it would be tech. I like information technology for a couple different reasons. Number one, and probably most important, is it's the best performing historically. Over the past 10, 15 years, it's been the best performing sector. And just over the past 10 years, it's been growing 18.5% per year. And the other reason I like it is that it automatically cuts out the lagging sector, which is communication services. Over the past 10 years, they've only been growing about 5% a year. So I'm glad that split has taken, you know, has happened, and now we can just have tech being its own thing. But in that, you still have such a wide berth of companies. It's so diversified across software, semiconductors, cybersecurity, renewable energy, cloud services. Just take a look into what actually is in the S&P 500 IT index, and it's it's ridiculous. And the other reason I say tech is that if you buy a tech index, you're almost buying the index as much as you can with one sector because it takes up so much of it. Apple and Microsoft alone are greater than 12% of the S&P 500, not to mention all the other ones that make tech take up over a quarter of the S&P 500 together. Um, So it's the best performing. You're getting a ton of diversity. It's companies that I'm interested in as well. I think that's a huge thing to think about. Is it, you know, would I like to be all-knowing and invest in financials more? Uh, Yeah, I guess, but it's just not really my uh, specialty or my realm of expertise. So I'm going to stick with what I know, and I think that's going to help me get bigger returns. And I will say that another factor that plays into this choice is the, the riskiness, and I'm okay with that. It is the best performing, but also perhaps the riskiest because it had the largest drawdown of any sector, going down 43% in its worst year. Uh, so being a young investor, I'm okay with that, but others might not be. I'm curious, what would your 
number one sectors be, guys, if you could only invest in one? I I think mine would be obvious. Um, I'm a tech guy, so my my industry would would be tech. I I, I did some research, kind of supporting that idea that tech, uh, you know, has outperformed. Uh, I I looked since um, about 2009, and tech has been one of the top um, performers in in the S and P um, for. Basically every single year, there of course there have been some ups and downs, but um, since 2009, it has been the top performing sector for four years and the bottom uh, performing sector uh, zero times. So tech has, uh, you know, obviously I think it has some re- recession resistance to it. No company or sector is completely immune to recessions, but I do think tech has a lack of cyclicality as compared to other industries, namely energy um, or materials or things like that. Um, additionally, it's easier for me to spot competitive advantages in tech companies versus uh, a consumer discretionary company, for example, if the main competitive advantage is a brand or uh, or their logistics or their supply chain, that's really hard for me to specifically find, uh, figure out, but also um, learn how that's sustainable for the long term. Uh, you know, yes, a supply chain might be um, sustainable, but my question would be for how long? Because it's only a matter of time before there's a company that is able to uh, out-innovate that. And so I, I think like Pepsi is is a great example. They have those competitive advantages and obviously they have that brand. But the question for me is around the sustainability. How long-term can they keep up those brands? Pepsi has defied the odds. They've they've done very well with that. Um, but those, those are two questions that I have um, and that I struggle with in some industries. So it's that mix of um, saying, as you said, um, invest in what I know. I, I feel like I know the tech sector better than other sectors in the market. Um, and you know, while things like healthcare, they've performed great um, over the past uh, decade or so, but that is just simply out of my um, circle of competence. And I just don't know um, companies or the industry that well. So it's a mix of those three things. I know the industry. Um, the industry has traditionally had a really strong performance, um, and it's easier for me to spot competitive advantages there. So I would say tech, even if it uh, is not the most uh, the, the best sector for the next 10 years or the next 20 years, um, I think that's where I have the largest competitive advantage. Well, I'm just going to make this all three answers the same. We were all tech, uh, minus tech as well. And the reason being... Tech allows you to take the most diversified approach out of all the different sectors. Everything is a tech company. John Deere is a tech company. Caterpillar is a tech company. You wouldn't think so, but they are. So that's the sector that I would choose is definitely tech. And I I think that allows you to have the most exposure in the most markets possible. So it's the same answer that I would give you know, if someone were to come to me and say, what's the best investment to make right now? I would look at them and I would say, S&P 500. Yeah, because that, I, I don't want to tell them one stock because that's not what makes a great portfolio. A great portfolio has diversification. That's a key component. Zane. So <laughs> I, I think tech allows you to have the most diversification out of all the sectors because tech is intertwined throughout all different industries and markets. Yeah, so that would the be thing is, though, Connor, if we actually did this and we invested only in tech, you would not get your favorite stock. You would not get John Deere. There's no way they're tech. And they I would not tech, get tech. But they definitely are. Tech. They definitely are, Zane. 
but they're not they're leading they're leading in self-driving saying come on now you think they might sure, yeah, you some, should know that there's technology they, they, integrated in the company but are they an actual holding of the s p 500 like it index i would doubt no, it i'd have they, to look it up they're 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 definitely not in that you know it or or tech ETF or whatnot, but I mean, are, are we talking about only these ETFs or investing in tech stocks or consumer discretionary stocks or energy stocks? Because if you if you're allowed to invest in whatever tech company you want, as long as you're making the point that it is a tech company, Deer definitely fits into that. No, I like that. I like that. I'm just being uh, being a little bit strict and saying, you know, if we actually did this by the book, you would not get John Deere. I would not get Tesla as a community. What is it? Consumer discretionary. Who company? writes the book? Who puts the parameters around what the tech sector is? Because they're Bro, well, Zane does. They take the book Zane and does. rip it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently I do. So I think we've talked. We, we we've talked a little bit about founder or not not founder CEOs. We'll get to that in a little bit. But we've talked about investing in what you know. Zane, you mentioned that. Jamie, you did as well. And so I think this is kind of a good transition into. The next question that is commonly asked in the investing world, and that is that people say, like Warren Buffett, say that it's important to invest in what you know, but how much are you supposed to know if you're not able to study these things constantly? For example, I have a metric you have a nine to five job. Awesome. Because I need some, some quantitative stuff to put around. All it right, I got you. Because I didn't find any, even though I said, bring some data. So, you know, Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett were both very famous for saying this. If you've read One Up on Wall Street from Peter Lynch, he talks about going to different hotels before he would buy the stock in that hotel. I can't remember. Was it Quality Inn, perhaps? Uh, La Quinta? I think it was La Quinta. Uh, he invested in La Quinta solely for the reason that he went there and enjoyed the experience. He took a brief look at their financials. They looked good. And he was like, this is a phenomenal idea. They're getting in all the right markets. I loved my stay. I'm going to invest in the company. It's not the typical investment analysis that you think of when you think of Wall Street, for example, with all these extensive models, deep look into all the financials of the company, projecting out future cash flows. That's kind of what analysis is known for. But Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett have kind of uh, taken the opposite of that stance. And so this is, you know, super famous, you know, it, it's a super famous idea to invest in what you know, but it's hard to actually figure out what do you have to know? Uh, so I think, you know, us making content is a phenomenal way to do this. And you don't have to make content to figure out if you know an investment, but it's a phenomenal way for me. You know, when we make short 10 minute videos on one company and I'm able to summarize and explain what that company does and why I think it's going to continue to succeed into the future. And I can explain that to a second grader. That's my goal is to be able to explain that company to a second grader. And if you can do that, I think you do have a good understanding of the business. You know, yesterday, Zane, you and I were texting about making a video on SoFi. And so I went over to their 10K. I was reading through their business section. Um, I read a couple of write-ups from Brad Freeman. And honestly, I just came to the conclusion that it, I, I'm just not a financials guy. And it doesn't mean that I shouldn't have exposure to financials, but like, I don't know enough about SoFi and I just don't understand how to value a business like that. I don't understand how to project what that business is going to do in the future because quite frankly, I have 
no knowledge of that industry. And, you know, I, I think there's something to say for getting exposure to a bunch of different sectors. But at the same time, you don't want to invest in a bunch of companies that you don't understand. If I were to invest in SoFi, for example, and I don't understand what the business does, and I see a couple bad headlines and the charts start to go down, what do you think I'm going to do? I have no conviction in that company because I don't understand how it works. So I'm more likely to sell that business versus John Deere, where I fully understand the business, or as much as I can. And I understand where I think it's going to go. I understand my thesis, and I can explain that thesis to a second grader. I'm a whole lot less likely to sell John Deere when their chart starts going down. And so it's a whole lot easier to sell a company if you're buying a chart that's going up. If you're buying a chart that's going up and it's just a stock and you're not investing in a business and you don't understand the business, all you're investing in is an idea that you heard from somebody that told you that this company was good. You go throw some money in that and it starts to go down. Your, your conclusion will be this guy was wrong that told me about this company or this chart's going down, I'm going to sell it. And so you're invested in a stock and not a business. And one of the best pieces of investment advice that I've ever gotten is that, and this is the most simple advice in investing. I think I heard this when I was you know, in high school, that never view a stock as a stock, always view it as a business. And this is the most simple investment concept possible. Um, and so there may be some people listening right now that are like, golly, obviously, you know, but also there may be some new people that are, are, you know, new to investing. And so I think this is an important concept to kind of hammer down here. Uh, it, it, and the reason for that is, you know, if you're investing in a business and you understand that business, and I'm kind of repeating myself here, you're a whole lot li less likely to, to sell when there's turmoil. As, as, as much as I love this idea of investing in what you know, I, it, it definitely has its flaws. And this is not to say I'm going against some of the biggest investors, but you know, if, if, if I tell my roommate, Zach, oh, go invest in what you know, do you know what he's going to buy? He's going to buy all oh, discretionary stocks. He's, he's, he's going to buy Pepsi. He's going to buy Apple. He's going to buy Nike. All of those could definitely be great investments, but he is solely um, focused in one specific sector, and that is consumer discretionary. And so um, I like it, but to a, a certain extent, because there does have to become a point where you know businesses that you don't technically know, that you don't necessarily experience. And so how do you, I guess, know those businesses? It's uh, very simple. I mean, it's just a, a, a lot of research in my mind, getting to the point where you could tell a second grader about what this business does. I have never, uh, you know, used uh, Datadog's platform, but I know what the business does. I know how it operates. I know, um, you know, what kind of market environments are good for this company. I know how businesses could react to certain uh, news outcomes and how that affects how they use their business. The same thing goes with advertising. I have never, uh, you know, used the Trade Desk services or Pubmatic services because they're not meant for for a uh, college student. They're not meant for, uh, you know, a, a random content creator. They're meant for businesses. Um, and so well, I might not have experience with that, but you can still understand the business knowing what makes it tick, how it operates. And it's still, I think, know that business. Totally agree. And you shouldn't let that be an excuse either. Oh, if you're yes, looking wait, at a company, you. for example, in the semiconductor industry, like, I don't know what the heck a semiconductor is. What are chips? You know, that shouldn't be an excuse to just put down the 10K and stop researching. 
I think sometimes exactly. you can use that as an opportunity to learn something more, not only about a company, but about an industry, about how our world works. And so that's the beauty of researching all of this stuff is that you are always constantly learning. So I, you definitely shouldn't say, oh, I just don't understand semiconductors. I'm not going to invest in, in this company because I, I don't understand it. I don't know it. It's not something I know. And Warren Buffett told me they'll only invest in what I know. So I'm going to buy Pepsi stock. So I totally agree, Jamie. You shouldn't let it, let that be an excuse. But at the same time, if you do, SoFi example here, I understand how to read financial statements. You know, I've been doing stuff on the analyst side for a while now. And I just came to the conclusion that quite frankly, I, I didn't want to put the time in. Now, could I understand SoFi? I think I could, but I think that would take me longer than I wanted to before I could, you know, talk about that company. And so it's just one that I'm not that interested in. You know, if it is like semiconductors, for example, I'm fascinated by them. I'm reading this book called Chip War that I've told you guys about, and it's helped me understand what a semiconductor actually is and how it works and how it's developed over time. And that has totally changed my perspective on the overall market environment for this entire industry and how, ASML works with TSMC and how TSMC basically builds every single chip in the entire world. So that's a very simplified explanation of the semiconductor industry. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I, yeah, don't let it be an excuse. Learn. Just, just one more point to kind of add on here. I also think that there are some um, errors in this judgment because I think it could potentially give, especially newer investors that are taking this as gospel, um, to say, okay, I know Under Armour, I'm going to invest in it and then not do anything else. Say, okay, I know the business. I love their clothes. Therefore, it must be a, a great business. I, I, There are limitations to this um, where you might know the business. You might love Adidas uh, or not Adidas, Under Armour clothing, but you might not want to touch Under Armour stock if you actually get under the hood and look at some of their financials or something like that. So uh, just, just another caution about this day. I think it's a great starting place. Don't get me wrong. Um, but how much do you actually know can definitely deviate. You might not have any product experience or consumer experience, um, yet it might be a great stock to invest in. There might not be uh, you might have a great consumer experience, but it might be a terrible stock to invest in. Uh, so, you know, there, there are limitations to this, um, but yeah. Yeah. So we're covering a lot of different, you know, value drivers that we, that we look for, but one of the value drivers is actually the people. And interestingly enough, I, I found some studies that I want to quickly look at in, in the last couple of minutes here. But the big question, question number four for the day is how much does it matter to have a founder CEO? So I think, Founder CEOs might be overrated, or maybe better way to say that is I have been overrating them. There is some evidence that I'm wrong to put as much emphasis on having founder CEOs as I have been. I just think the idea is really nice. You have someone who's uh, you know built the company, so they're going to know what's best. They're going to know how to execute on that. But it turns out, um, according to uh, I can I can put it up here, but it's the Harvard Business Review article. Um, founders could be better at knowing what to do versus how to do it. And this kind of makes sense. They start, they have the inspiration for the company, they have the direction and the guiding vision, but maybe they don't know how to, you know, cut out costs somewhere or streamline operations. 
Um, I've actually a direct quote challenges such as streamlining operations, lowering costs, managing an increasing number of employees, products, services, functions, geographies, and customers have little in common with the leadership requirements of a startup. So there's some information there that's maybe they're not that great. But then there's people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos who stick around for a long time. And obviously you want them to be a CEO founder for a while. Um, but the study in, in the Harvard Business Review found founder CEOs were associated with a 10% higher valuation at IPO for their business, but that value add becomes basically zero after three years being public. So it's better for VCs and early investors, but it's less important for us retail investors in the public markets. Um, another study found that founder CEOs lead to more patents. So if that's a proxy for innovation, those companies could be a little more innovative. But I think that's really interesting because I've put so much weight on founder CEOs. Maybe they're not as impactful in the public markets as I used to think. Well, also, I, I, I mean, I think we've all seen the charts about the companies in the S&P 500 with founders. If you take all those companies and compare them to the rest of the S&P 500, it outperforms significantly over time. So I think there is something to be said for having a lot of skin in the game having founders but there's so there's so many variables like we're doing a one variable analysis here of founder-led companies versus all the rest and there's so there's so many other things that go into it besides is there a founder leading this company as ceo versus is there's is there not well the founder-led ceos are typically smaller typically small cap companies uh, a lot of them have been tech companies as well so, you know, it's more of that venture style investment when they come public. So, I mean, there's, there's so many variables to this to try and figure yeah. out how important it is. It's obviously, you know, simplified. It, it's tough to, to do this kind of analysis. Uh, but, you know, I think it's useful to look at studies like this and just see, you know, does it go against what, what your beliefs are? Maybe there's some counter evidence, but I think that wraps us up for four big investing questions that are super common that we wanted to weigh in on. So thanks everyone for watching and we'll see you in the next episode. What's up everyone. Thanks for watching. We hope you enjoyed that video. Check out more of our best videos right here. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already for more videos like this. See you next time.